Look, uh, last week was intense. Um, if you were here, one of the things that we learnt last week is that our sins are not just misdeeds or mistakes. They're actually spiritual affairs. We've, uh, we are relational worshippers by nature. And when we sin, it's the fruit of us giving ourselves relationally uh, in worship to another God. Um, and like any affair, the most obvious question the offender asks when they're sorry about having an affair is, how do I make it right again? What do I do to fix up the relationship? Now, one of the things I said last week is that if you've had an affair, most of the power rests with the person that you've offended. Most of the power rests with the jilted lover, if I can put it that way. Um, It's true that the relationship won't be restored Um, unless the jilted lover still loves you and they're prepared to give you more grace. They're prepared to give you forgiveness. But there's another ingredient as well. The unfaithful person needs to turn away from their unfaithfulness. That's what they need to do. Um, If they don't, you don't have a relationship either. It may well be that that the majority of the percentage of the reconciliation work is done by the person who's offended But if the offender doesn't do any work, you you don't have a relationship either. Um, I wonder how you would go. This this is, um, I wouldn't say it's a frequent occurrence, but it's happened to me a few times where I've sat with someone and they've told me about the fact that they've had an affair and they kind of asked me what to do about it. What, What would you say? What would you say to them about what they should do about it? Um... There are many unhelpful things that you can say in that moment. Is everyone with me on that? Uh, Like heaps. And if you just did a Google search about what to do after you've had an affair, which I did uh, the other day, you will find a lot of unhelpful information. Uh, One of the suggestions online is like if the uh, affair is over and it's done and you've committed back to your spouse again, uh, don't tell them. Don't tell them about it. Um... I remember, I'm going to keep this really vague to protect the, uh, the guilty. Um, I remember having this weird conversation. Now, it was weird because of the location, right? But this, this is, I don't know, this is one of the things, that when you're a pastor, you have weird conversations in weird places, right? It's just how it happens. Sitting, I can still remember where we were sitting, sitting with this guy at Zarafa's North Point, and he, and he tells me, that he had committed adultery twice in the preceding three months. Wife didn't know. And he's telling me, it's like, are you kidding? Like, there's like probably five people in the lineup there. Everyone's within about a metre and a half pre-COVID, all right? And, and it's like, you, you, are you seriously, you're telling me this now? And he, he didn't want to tell his wife. And he didn't think I should tell her. And it reminds me of a uh, conversation I had with Ed Welsh a while ago. I had this very conversation, like if someone's committed an aff- adultery, they've had an affair, should they tell their spouse? And uh, Ed quoted, um, you know, one of those columns in the newspaper that people write in questions and they answer them. And uh, he said the lady answered very, very wisely. She said, um, if you don't tell about the affair, you don't have a relationship if you do tell, you might have a relationship. <laughs> and I, I think that's, that's pretty wise. But here's, this is the critical question, isn't it? Um, how, do you, how do you turn up 
Sorry. How do you turn up when you've been unfaithful in a relationship? This is, uh, this is critical. Now, there's going to be principles today that apply to any relationship that you've damaged, but today's um, focus is really our relationship with God. And I, I trust that everyone, I mean, even if, even if you don't love Jesus today, you don't believe in God, you're not a Christian, like at, at the very least, I think you should probably say there is something unique about being unfaithful to God himself. Like we probably just want to be careful about how we're going to show up when we show up to God, when we're being unfaithful to him. I mean, we want to do that with any relationship, but when he's the sovereign of the universe and he could probably just stomp on you and it'd be all over and it'd be lights out, uh, we probably just want to be a little bit more careful. Is anyone with me on that? Just kind of logical, like just makes a bit of sense. Um, You know, when you've done the wrong thing, you can't earn forgiveness. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about... You can earn forgiveness, but how do you actually turn up? I mean, forgiveness and grace, when you've offended someone and you've had an affair and you've committed adultery, is what you say desperately need, but it's actually the thing you have the least control over. And the way you turn up is critical to you receiving it. So let's just have a quick look at the, uh, at the text for this morning, James chapter 4. just want to read through that. James chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 6. I'll give you a moment. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. This is immediately after the section about being adulterers. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Hang with me at verse 6 there for a moment. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do you get more grace? You'd be humble. Like James has answered his own thing. It's like we sit there and we go, but he gives more grace. And we go, yeah, Oliver Twist, right? Please, sir, can I have some more? You know, please, sir, can I have some more? Every day, can I have some more? And then James says, here's how you get more. You'd be humble. God's always gracious, but he's not a vending machine. <laughs> you don't show up and put something in the slot and then it comes out. You've got to show up with humility by being humble. Well, what's that? Well, we could preach for the rest of the year until 2025 on humility. I mean, there's been no end of books on it. I mean, if you want to, have a, if you want to look at a historical treatment of it, check out John Dixon's book, Humilitas. Fascinating stuff. Lots and lots of good books. You can go to Andrew Murray's Humility, book called Humility. You know what humility means? The word humility actually means to lower oneself to humble yourself is to lower yourself you know humility is giving way to my centeredness and turning to other centeredness this is philippians 2 verse 3 the classic actually hymn of the early church about humility Um, and jesus is is the center of that do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant then yourselves have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who gave up everything. He took himself out of the center. 
He put his father and other people in the center and lived for them. Other-centeredness is the key to humility. Here's the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, if you want a good reconciliation, you want a good sorry, well, you just need to get yourself out of the center. <laughs> That's what you need to do. You know, we, we talked last week, I talked last week about self-worship, that humanity turns to self-worship. We put ourselves in the centre and we, you know, you remember that. Adam and Eve were the first ram raid, the first smash and grab. Like they just smashed in, grabbed what they wanted and then took off. What was going on? Well, they were in the centre. That's what gets you in trouble. And I'll tell you something, if you stay in the centre when you show up for your sorry and your, your, your repentance, it gets messy. So here's... Here's what not to do, <laughs> all right? Here's a few examples of some ways you could show up in a situation where there's been relational breakdown and relational unfaithfulness in a way that's not helpful. Here's the first one. Only tell some of the story for the sake of self-protection. It is not humility when it comes to reconciliation. It's about packaging the confession so that you minimise the damage. Who's in the middle? You. That's who's in the middle. You know you need to tell it, but it's still largely about you. Now, I'm not saying that if you've been unfaithful, that you need to go through all the deep, dark and dirty details. Just as a side note, if there's a husband and wife and someone's been unfaithful, it's the offended spouse that gets to make the decision about how much information they want to know. The person who's the offender needs to be prepared to answer every question. But to actually roll that out in the beginning may not be particularly helpful the issue with this one is people who do this are more concerned about the consequences than the offense itself what about this one defend yourself when you are telling the other person about it how do you reckon this would go like you you turn up to your spouse and you tell them that you've been unfaithful and then you say well it's partly your fault because of our bad marriage (laughs) is that going to go well yeah is that Thank you, Linda. One person's like, no, that will not go well. (laughs) You could end up dead. Or another thing that you could do is you could confess your uh, sin and go, well, I'm actually a pretty good person outside of that. And it's like, no, don't even talk about that. Don't even bring it up. You're still manoeuvring and trying to manage the situation for your own benefit. Here's the third one. Tell the other person the main reason why you confessed was because you couldn't handle it anymore. Now, this will be a part of confession, right? Because you feel guilt and you feel conviction about it and it weighs really heavily on you. But can you see the problem here? If this is the main thing, if this is the big thing in you confessing, it's still about you. It's not about the other person. It's not about the the, the offence. It's still about you. It's still ultimately self-serving. And this one. Demand that they forgive you once you're done. <laughs> it's like, oh, you are not the person that should be saying that. Now, this, this phrase might be just a little bit uncomfortable for you, but one of the things that I say sometimes is I go, you just need to put your cup on, right, because it's going to get brutal for you for a while if you're the offender, okay? It's just going to get brutal for you.
Point out that they're not perfect either. <laughs> it's like, you're just asking for a bleeding nose at that point, aren't you? Um, you know, if, if, you've, if you've been unfaithful and you saunter back into the confession and the relationship with yourself in the centre, how do you think that's going to go? It's not going to go well at all. It doesn't go well with God either. It does not go well. Why? Because pride and putting yourself in the centre, I want you to hear this, and this is what Lewis says, is essentially competitive and it's by nature divisive. It doesn't bring relationships together. It splits them. That's what it does. It doesn't bring about reconciliation. Will you get more grace if you go in with yourself at the centre? I don't think so. I don't think you will. So what's a better way? Well, James tells you what the better way is. Humility. And I want you to get this image. Humility attracts grace like iron filings to a magnet. Humility attracts grace like iron filings to a magnet. Why? Because humility says that I'm needy. Humility is about other people. Humility is a recognition that you don't have it all together. Pride says, I don't need your help. I'm all good on my own. I'm essentially a good person. And everyone around you just goes, well, I don't need any help. Now, ironically, they need more help than anyone in that moment. Humility, on the other hand, is about you placing yourself low and being open about needing help. And I, want, I just want to say to you this morning, humility for humans is normal. This is not exceptional. This is normal. This is a normal human thing to be humble. It's normal when you've blown it with God that you'd show up and you'd be humble, that you'd recognise your need for help. And I want you to hear this. This is really critical. Humility stirs up God's heart to be gracious to us and it readies our heart to receive his help. There's two sides to it. Like you can, God is not going to show you a whole bunch of grace when you're being, when you got yourself in the centre and when you're being arrogant and proud. He's just not going to do that. Because you're saying to him, I don't need you. And even if he did show grace to you, you'd go, I don't need it. I don't need it. So you push it away. So there's two sides to it. That God's less disposed to give grace. He doesn't tend to give grace to the proud. And we're not ready to receive the grace that he has for us. All right. Point number two. My first one was be humble like this. Verse 7 and 9, let's have a look at it quickly. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There are four aspects or four components that James says are part of a good sorry. You ready? I'm going to go through them. Here's the first one. Submit to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. This is obvious. Now, we don't like submission and Australians don't like submission, but I want to say something to you. You do submission when your desires get control over your heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? You submit to them and they wreck your life. You end up doing all sorts of dumb things, like you actually do submit to them. Desire gets too big and you bow down and you worship. That's how it works. 
Whatever the object of your worship is, that is the thing that you serve. It's the thing that you submit to. It waged war against you and it captured your heart. So if you want to come back to God and you want to sort things out to God, what do you need to do? Well, you need to stop submitting to the idols and submit to him. Straightforward. Now we go, oh, that's going to be bad. Now you do a little bit, right? Some of you. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Submission's bad. Because we are, we rebel. I'm not talking about a spiritual thing. Like that's an Australian thing, right? We're rebels. That's what we are. Man, we just get after the underdog, right? You want freedom? You want to be completely 100% who God's made you to be? Submit to him. Submit to him. His is the only... The only submission that brings freedom and it brings fullness of joy. Now, what's interesting about this submission thing is the devil pops up here, right? And it's a little bit random, right? Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, what the heck is he doing here? Well, he's everywhere. And I don't mean that in a spatial kind of sense that he's omnipresent like God is because he's not. But you just need to know that him and his angels are up to stuff all the time. You go right back to the Garden of Eden and you've got the serpent being directly involved in the fall of humanity. What's he doing? He's trying to separate humanity from God. And he succeeds. Now, you live, if this is the first you've heard it, um, my apologies, but... Whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian, you live in a war zone and you have enlisted in the counter-offensive. Okay? Is everyone with me? That's just how it is. And you just go, well, I don't, I don't like fighting. It's like, well, don't be a Christian. Because being a Christian is going to be about fighting. You just go, well, I don't want it to get brutal. It's like, well, you don't have a choice. You, you were born into a world that's a war. Now, <laughs> do you seriously think that you're going to get a clear run in a world that's at war? You're not going to get a clear run. You're not. Some of you going, oh, man, can someone give me some hope here? You're not getting a clear run. Why? Because it's a world that's at war and you have an opponent. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Mere Christianity. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening into the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. Now, a while ago I preached about spiritual warfare and one of the ways that the church theologically is understood, the way temptations work, is that they come from the world of flesh and the devil. And uh, I presented a bit of a case uh, which uh, comes from David Powlison mostly about the fact that you don't sit down and go, that's a world temptation, that's a flesh one and that's a devil one, but that all three are operating in every temptation. And I think that's the case. I think the devil's up to something in every single temptation that you have. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to create division. He wants to create division between you and God 
and he's very successful at it often. But here is the hope, all right? What does James say? You know what he says? You can beat him. <laughs> Do you like that? You, you are not some poor, oppressed minority who's on a hiding to nothing. You're just not. Submit to God, resist the devil, and, and he'll flee. He's going to run like a scolded cat. But you know what? You, you have to be strong. You have to be strong. You're on the winning team. Sometimes the church plays defense, but mostly the church plays offense. That's your job. We have a little bit of defense, but our defense is only so we can play offense. And I just want to say to you this morning, lift your head up and stop acting like the poor persecuted minority. You're just not. You, hear me people, you are not powerless. He doesn't come knocking at your door and you just kind of acquiesce and you go, oh, there's nothing I can do. Yeah, rubbish there is. You can beat him. God is with you and you need to submit to him and you stay tight to God and you're going to take him down. you got more power than ever. But you'd better expect to get some pushback. God is doing some amazing things in us at the project. The devil's not going to let that go. I was on the phone to a mate in Sydney over the weekend. This is what he said to me. He said to me, do you think there's more spiritual warfare that goes on in Toowoomba with churches than in Sydney? I said, oh, I don't know. He said, that seems weird to me. I said, it's a Bible belt. He goes, that's exactly my point. He said, it feels like down in Sydney people are just apathetic about religion and spirituality. He said, you guys seem to care a bit more and there's a bit more going on in your culture. What does that mean? Well, there's more fight. There's more fight. So here's, here's my word to you today. Don't play the victim or you'll become one. Don't. We don't say this enough at the church. You need to be strong. We talk a lot about weakness, but you need to be strong. And you need to stand up against the devil and you need to go forward and you, not need, you need to not be intimidated and you need to not play the victim. You are not a victim. You are an heir of God, you're a child of God and you've got a blinking nuclear warhead in your backpack. You with me? Don't be pathetic. Some of you go, oh, you're making me feel pathetic. I don't want you to feel pathetic, all right? You're not pathetic. Don't be pathetic. We're all tired at this end of the year, right? but don't be pathetic. You can do it. Second one, second part of a good sorry. Draw near. Do you know what this is about? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Do you know, this is about God's presence. That's what it is. The Old Testament priests, what were they called to do? They were called to be near God. You are a priest. Your job is to be near him. But here's the reality. History tells us and the Bible tells us and our own experience tells us that you can be near God but not near him. True? Sorry. Did someone say something? True? Amen. Right? 
Matthew 15, 8, this people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Well, how do you draw near to God? Well, you know what? Drawing near to God is a personal and relational activity. You look at this passage, you see all the way through this passage that there's things happening in front of God, before God's face. You go right back to the Ten Commandments, which I think we touched on last week. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods, what? Before me. You know how Calvin translates that? Translates that? You shall have no other gods before my face. Before my face, it's personal. It's intensely personal. This is communion. This is communion. Don't live your life before the face of an idol. Live your life before God's face. Well, some of you go, well, how do you draw near? Well, let's break it down to human, human speak. How do you draw near to someone you love? How do you get close? Well, here's the first thing. You have to like them. You have to like them. You have to love them. You have to enjoy their presence. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Angie and I have been married for 20 years this year. It's been the best 20 years of a life. And I love her more than anything else on this planet. And I like to draw near to her. How do I do it? Well, I take an interest in what she takes an interest in. I listen to what matters to her. I treasure her. I don't want to do something that hurts her. I open myself up to her. I want to know her and be known by her. And I find ways to be in her presence. I'll send a text message during the day because just for that snippet, I'm just in her presence when we interact during the day. We will have a coffee on the lounge Whenever she comes home from work and I come home from work, we sit, we have a coffee and we talk. Talking, listening, being together. So how would you draw near to God? Talking, listening, being together. Wouldn't you? Be open to him. Worship. When we worship at church in song, give your heart to him. Say to him out of your heart, like I just, I'm not close enough. And that's not a command thing. That's like, I just want to be closer to you. Pray. Read your Bible. Meditate. Now, sometimes people with this whole thing about drawing near to God, it's like, oh, who's doing the works? Like, uh, draw near to God, he draws near to you. Like, is that a works thing? Or, no, it's not. It's just a relational thing. That's what it is. Here's, here's a few quotes from some legends of the faith. Uh, Labour to be brought near. Interesting statement, isn't it? So what do you do? You've got to work for it or does it come to you? Yes. All right. The next one. Let us therefore labour to feel Christ more to feel Christ living in us. John Calvin. So do you have to labour for it or does it come to you? Yes. Jonathan Edwards. We should labour to be continually growing in divine love. Or you've got to work for it or does it come to you? Yes. Why? Here's the answer. Because in a relationship where people are drawing near, if either one of the two people in the relationship are passive, you won't get close. Both people in a relationship have to be active. And this is what I think James is actually saying in James chapter 4 here is, 
get off your backside and draw near. And what's God going to do when you draw near? Well, he's going to draw near. Why? Because that's how every relationship works. One moves to the other one, then the other one moves closer, and then the other one moves closer, and then the other one moves closer, and all of a sudden we're all really close and we don't really know how we got here. Third part of a good sorry, cleansing. In James 4, verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, what, what are hands and hearts? Well, hands are your deeds and heart is your motivations or your, uh, your wants. Uh, and what's James saying? Well, he's better clean them both up. My uh, old man um, was a president minister pretty much my whole life. And uh, he used to say that a lot of Christians have got one foot in the world and one foot in the church and they're not happy in either. And I just it's, probably, it's probably pretty, pretty true a lot of the time. I was talking to um, a mate of mine a while ago and he uh, was working with a lady who had actually committed adultery on her husband. And um, it all kind of came out and they had these conversations. And do you know what happened after... They had the initial conversations. She kept texting the guy that she had the affair with. See, I think this is what James is talking about here. Like if you if you've had an affair, you need to break it off. <laughs> break it off. What's the terminology for that in the Old Testament? Smash your idol. Smash it. Clean your hands up, clean your heart up. Don't keep texting your old lover. Don't do it. Number four, be sorrowful. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is verse nine. We don't need more Christians getting around being morbid and depressed. That's not what James is talking about here. We at the project want to be a vibrant community of Jesus' disciples. Hear me on this. We need to be the most optimistic people on the planet. True? Why? Because it's always going to end up good. You know, so you go in a situation, someone goes, it's all going to crap. Like all hell has broken loose. You just go, yep, it has, and that's really hard, and there's a fair bit of work that's going to be done there, but it's going to be good. (laughs) It's like, can you just shut up for a sec? Maybe there's a time and a place to deliver that, but that's what we need to carry with us inside of us. It's like, no, nah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Somehow it's going to be good. We have the best news. So don't be pathetic, depressed and dark all the time. Ecclesiastes says, though, that there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. When it is time to laugh, can I just give you an encouragement on this? Can you just promise me, you just laugh really hard. <laughs> I just laugh like at the right time to laugh, belly laugh. I do that. Don't, don't be half-hearted in laughing, right? Because what James is saying here is when there's a time to weep and mourn, you shouldn't be half-hearted in that either. Just be fully orbed people. And here's the thing, don't get them the wrong way around. Don't laugh when you should be crying or cry when you should be laughing. You can cry because you're laughing so hard, but not mourning kind of crying. 
In the uh, early years of my, um, I taught for about, I don't know, 18 years. Um, clearly it was a high point of my life. Um, but uh, I taught for about 18 years. And one of the things you learn really quickly when you uh, teach high schoolers, especially high school boys, is that there's some high school boys that have got this nervous reaction to getting in trouble where they smile at you. Any teachers know what I'm talking about? And you just go, you rude individual. And you just and you're drilling them harder, and then they might even start laughing at you. And you just go, oh, this is all going wrong. What's the problem? The problem is that it's the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that's what James is saying here. Like, don't don't get it wrong. Like, don't be flippant about things that are important, about things that are serious. Sometimes people laugh when they shouldn't laugh. Now, there's some jokes that are really funny and they're really hard not to laugh at, but do you know there's some jokes that are like really crude and really pointed and really hurtful to people? And you can laugh at those and you probably shouldn't. People glory in their shame. That's what the scriptures talk about. You know, sometimes we can just be unfaithful to God and just sling it off and not even care about it. You know, joking and laughter are often associated with fools in the Old Testament. Listen to this from Proverbs 10, verse 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. If you've done the wrong thing, if you've been unfaithful, you need to mourn and weep about it. You know, you go in and you want to fix up an adultery or an affair with someone and you start laughing in the middle of it, I guarantee you that will not go well with you. That is not the time to be silly and to be making sarcastic jokes. And I think that is what James is talking about uh, with us here. And I wonder, how long has it been since you've literally wept tears over your unfaithfulness to God? Now, I'm not saying that you're going to break down in tears, you know, when you slam the dishwasher door too hard because you're angry about something. You might. You know, if, you, if, you, if your heart is really for God and it's really close to God and it's really tender, you'll feel that. And sometimes I think that'll express itself in, in actual mourning and crying. All right, here's our up to be humble, like this, submit to God, draw near cleansing and be sorrowful and you will be exalted. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is a day of opportunity. It's a day for you to come and be needy and dependent. This is a day for you to return to the way that you've been made. You have not been made to be okay on your own. We've been made to be dependent upon God. We don't have enough wisdom, strength, energy, capacity to get things done the way that God wants us to do it and the way we've been made to do it on our own. We just don't. We're limited and we need to be okay with that. And here's the reality, sin enters in and it makes it way worse, way worse. Like whatever need we had is way worse now. So the opportunity for us is to turn up to God and be humble and dependent and needy with him. So we turn up to God and we say, I blew it. I got it wrong. I cheated on you. How does he respond? 
Close your mind. Grace. Grace. Help. More grace. More help. More favour. This is in vast contrast. Maybe the music team can come up. This is in vast contrast to those who exalt themselves. Do you know, you can humble yourself or you can be humiliated. you know what the difference is? They're both about being low. Humble yourself is when you do it. Humiliate is when someone else does it to you. And I want to say to you this morning that, and I just want you to appreciate the contrast. I'm not kind of coming after you with this, but appreciate the contrast. Um, Listen to this from Isaiah 2 verse 12. This makes me shudder. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Now, (laughs) if you could get into God's Outlook app and go to his calendar, he has a day set aside, and there's been multiple days, but there's going to be an ultimate day where all the proud things, he's going to humiliate the proud. He's going to bring them low. And that's, that's like freaky. It's like I've got a day set aside for that. Well, what about the humble? Like he has days for you. Picture it for a minute. This is where we'll finish. You, you realise... You've been unfaithful to God and it rips you up and you're just going, what an idiot I've been. I've been such an idiot. I love something that destroyed me. I brought dishonour to God. I, I, the one who loves me so much, I, I just scorned him. I just ignored him. It's interesting, uh, when we did restoration groups in... Um, Teen Challenge last year. Do you know one of the things that struck me? I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, these guys have got some wicked kind of stories. I'm just going to go, we're going to hear some really wild stuff. You know, and we did. But I tell you, to a man, pretty much all of them, the worst thing that they'd ever done was when someone loved them and they didn't receive it and they treated it as though it was nothing. And it blew me away. I just went, that... I would not have picked that as the most evil thing. But that is a thing. So, so you, it lands on you, right? And you just go, right, I've got to... I mean, imagine Jesus being in a room and you're just going, this is the, <clears throat> the affair confessing bit, right? And you're going in there and you're just going, I'm on a hiding to nothing. He's the holy, righteous, pure God. He knows everything that I've done. I can't hide anything from Him. I'm wrong and I'm just, I'm just totally on the wrong side of the ledger here. So you come in and you're confessing, groveling, begging for forgiveness. And you say to him, I don't deserve anything good. These are shades of the prodigal son, right? Comes back and he goes, just, just make me a seven. I don't care if I can, if I can just, I don't know. Just sweep or something. Just anything. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve any good treatment. And you kind of go, seriously, I I just need to cop what's coming to me. Perhaps you're on your knees in this moment. And he surprises the heck out of you. 
And he says to you, and is this not the most exalting thing when you've been unfaithful to someone for them to say, I forgive you? Peter, you don't need to be down there anymore. You don't need to be there anymore. I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. (laughs) This is good, isn't it? There's lots of ways God exalts you, but in the context of relational unfaithfulness and confession and repentance, is there no more amazing thing in terms of being exalted than being forgiven? We get low and he lifts us up. But it doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, I forgive you. He says, I forgive you, son. I forgive you, daughter. He gives you help. And do you know what he says to you? (laughs) Come up here and sit with me. Isn't that amazing? And I want to say that over you all today. Jesus says to you, come up here and sit with me. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Come and sit with me. He's not going to let you grovel. He's not going to go, I'm just going to enjoy this for five minutes before I forgive him or her. He will lift you up. He truly will lift you up.